Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm with... Lisa Gonzalez. Hey, everybody. Hey, did you see that coming? See what coming? You. Oh. (laughs) Today, we're doing another of our Crazy Talk series. We haven't done one for a while, but boy, while we've been gone, the talk has gotten crazy. And in particular, today we're going to talk about a report from the, I would say, somewhat Orwellian State Government Leadership Foundation, and a report written by a doctor, George S. Ford, a guy who strikes me would insist that you call him doctor. Um... The title of the report is The Impact of Government-Owned Broadband Networks on Private Investment and Consumer Welfare. What do we know about Dr. Ford, Chris? Well, you know, the funny thing is, is Dr. Ford is like one of those mercenaries. Um, he he does what his uh, employers tell him to, from what I can tell. Uh, back uh, a little more than 10 years ago in AT&T, for people who aren't familiar with the history, we'll go through it a little bit, but okay. AT&T used to really like competition. AT&T used to be a long-distance company that was not allowed to engage in local competition. Then SBC, a, a one of the former Ma Bell companies that got broken up, they bought AT&T. And AT&T went from a company that really liked local municipal networks to being a company that really did not like local municipal networks. Imagine that. When that happened, the Phoenix Center, George S. Ford, these guys that have a long history with AT&T, overnight went from being, yay, municipalities and local competition to, boo, municipalities and local competition. Um, He actually wrote a report, and I'm just going to pop it up here, because um, it was about 2005. He was looking in in, uh, Lake County in Florida, and he determined that it was very clear that municipal networks actually encouraged uh, competition rather than discouraging it. Now he's sort of changed his tune, but all along I've found him to be very unimpressive. When When you read this report, if you if you actually know what's going on in this space, you quickly realize this guy has no idea what's going on. This guy likes math. And I he also does. he likes graphs too. Yeah. yeah. I, I like it's math nice. too. But Lisa, have you ever heard of this this idea of like you can't actually get across a room because to go across the room you have to go halfway and then you have to go halfway again and you can never actually get there cuz you're always just going, going halfway. halfway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's interesting but fundamentally we go across rooms all the time right and that's the kind of math that i think this guy uses right it's this idea of i'm just gonna fool you with numbers and i'm not gonna actually talk about reality i'm just going to you know develop these formulas and the formulas have to be right because they add up and they they are the both sides on each side of the equal equation and uh you know i just I find it unimpressive when people try to use their math skills to describe fields that they clearly don't actually know anything mm-hmm, about. Mm-hmm. And things are different on paper than they are in real life. Oh, that's absolutely yeah, true. I yeah. mean, Lisa, mm-hmm. you read over this report. Mm-hmm. Did you have a similar reaction in terms of just the assertions that he makes? I thought, oh, this is fine as long as it's in a vacuum. Right, right. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, if this was a different universe with, with right. you know, I can, I, can, I can understand his points. But when he says things like all municipal networks are subsidized, mm-hmm. um, right. that's, that's remarkable. How does this report compare to others we've seen that are opposed? I mean, besides the fact that you're unimpressed. Well, 
If you pick out just one item, and this is coming from page V of the report. In the executive summary. Right. You know, when I read this at first, I read this and I was kind of like, well, that actually sounds like municipal networks are doing a pretty good job. He says municipal systems regularly obtain 60% market share and remove a major anchor tenant uh, from private networks. Wow. Now, if that was true... I mean, it would be amazing, right? I mean, yeah. that would suggest that every municipal network had more than half of the, half the, you know, they're usually competing against two other firms. So that would mean that that they had just basically conquered that market, right? I mean, this is kind of the direction Chattanooga is heading in. Yeah, that would be a big scramble. It's, it's preposterous, frankly. <laughs> a lot of municipal networks have between 30 and, and 45% market share. They're doing well. They're paying their bills. That's what they need to cash flow. Mm-hmm. They don't have 60%. 60% is ludicrous. I think the biggest number that I've seen came from 2009 when the average number of systems um, had a 56% market share. And since then, that number has dropped dramatically because those were generally systems that were in less competitive areas. Municipal networks that have been built in places like Chattanooga, you know, Chattanooga being the outlier and that they have over 50% now, most of them don't achieve over 50%. Uh, so they're pulling that, that that average down. I don't know where he got this 60% That's market That's what chart. I was wondering. Did he just pull it out of the air? Or? I, I, and so the second thing is, is that the claim from industry is overwhelmingly that municipal networks are failures because nobody wants to sign up because they're poor service and whatnot. Well, this directly contradicts it. And in fact, when you read this, his claim seems to be that municipal networks are too successful and that they are somehow cheating, Ah, right? They are cheaters. Right, right, (laughs) because they're too successful. Which, again, I mean... Today. Once again, in a vacuum, you could sort of... This sort of stands for itself. Mm -hmm. But this very much negates all the other criticism against municipal networks, Mm -hmm. if it were correct, Mm -hmm which unfortunately is actually not correct. We know that municipal networks do not regularly obtain 60%. That Mm -hmm. is just, they don't need to obtain 60%. I'm sure that they would want to obtain 60%, but they're competing against at least two other providers, uh, generally a telephone company and a cable company. Mm -hmm. So they are not obtaining that. And when someone has no sense of even the basic facts of, of how these systems operate, I mean, in other cases, he talks about how they don't regularly compete against the cable and telephone company because they wouldn't build them in areas where there was already cable and telephone investment. He doesn't understand that DSL is not good enough, mm-hmm. that cable is not good enough. Mm-hmm. He doesn't understand how what the track record is on municipal networks. He doesn't understand why communities build them. And he has no sense of, of what subsidies are, which I think is something that we're, we're going to talk about. Well, well, let's talk about subsidies. So, you know, I remember in the paper him bringing up subsidies. And first of all, he assumes that municipal networks all have to start with subsidies. Right. And he says he's going to prove it. And he proves it Where by... Where did I miss that? It was in a footnote. And oh. he, he kind of points to like a couple of arguments from a few people here and there in which they talk about how local governments could go about funding it, theoretically. You know, it's sort of like a to a local government, these are different sources you could tap into. That certainly doesn't prove that they're subsidies. And Lisa, you've done a lot of work on this. Um, you know, how many networks do you have you seen that have... I mean, would you say that half of them are subsidized? No. 
Yeah, I wouldn't either. I mean, no. most of these networks are either... No, to him, he said that they're non-starters unless they're subsidized. Right. That's one of the things. And in part, I think he justifies that because he claims that municipal networks are only being built in areas where there's no investment or where yeah, there's no the investment. Yeah, the valleys of death. How would you like to be one of the people who lives in a valley of death? Right. But there again, he's confused. <laughs> how, how offensive. Well, he's confused about the difference between zero service and crap service. Uh-huh. You know, I, I guess maybe he's had a good experience. Maybe he has a small provider that meets his needs. I don't think he's an AT&T customer, you know, out in um, on the end of the line, basically. Mm, um, because he, he would understand then that these are networks that are built in areas that have some crap service, mm-hmm. right? It's slow DSL. It's unreliable. Heck, you know, I just actually was talking to people in Iowa where uh, one of the big companies, I think it was CenturyLink, would tell businesses, sorry, we're not sending someone out to fix that problem until there's uh, multiple people that have a problem and we can roll a truck. You're not right. going to just send it to fix your problem. Right. It's not worth their time to right. send somebody out there. Okay, so subsidies. So so let's go to, so then he talks about subsidies, right? And he talks about Chattanooga was subsidized by, because it got a grant. And he claims Sandy, Oregon got a grant. I think he's actually confusing Sandy with the county in which it sits. But let's just, let's just take that and assume that these grant programs, which gave a lot of money to the private sector and give some money to the public sector. Yeah, that, you know, I... I was like, why are you even going here? Right, because you know? in his like, world, everyone is subsidized. I know. It, yeah. AT&T is subsidized. The cable companies are subsidized. I know. And he's like, well, municipal networks, they're just winning because they're subsidized. I know. It's like, what are you talking about? I mean, and then he was talking about how, like, subsidies should only be given to existing networks. Oh, yes. God, because the right of first refusal. Right, we come exactly. across this all the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. I actually have had a note for six months on my monitor reminding me the next time we did a crazy talk, I wanted to talk about the right of first refusal. Okay, talk away. Well, the right of first refusal mm-hmm. says if you come upon an incumbent provider that has refused to invest in the community and is not doing a good job, the best thing you can do is throw money at them. <laughs> right? It's, 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 it's so crazy. And the problem with this sort of thinking is that if you're thinking to yourself, I'm an independent entrepreneur, I want to build the next great network. And, and maybe I'm going to try and get a subsidy or maybe I'm just going to go in and compete in this area. But the incumbent has a right of first refusal. You're thinking to yourself, no, I'm going to go over to this other city where I don't have to deal with that crap, right? I don't want to have to deal with a right of first refusal. So the right of first refusal has all kinds of impacts. And we're seeing this in Minnesota where if there's a grant program to try and and boost connection speeds in an, in a, in an area between both a community that has some DSL and a surrounding area that, that has nothing really. Um, but if you apply for funds to connect everyone, then the incumbent provider might be able to challenge that and say, I have a right of first refusal. Well, that just means that you're going to be taking those cities out of contention because nobody wants to go through the process of developing an application only to have it rejected by an incumbent. That incumbent had its opportunity, Mm -hmm. right? They've had their chance to invest. We've been talking about this for 10 years, right? They've had plenty of opportunity to invest. They have not. Heck, you know, the, 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 the AT&Ts and the CenturyLinks, they get all of this money from the Universal Service Funds, right, to try and do this. The co-ops get that money, and they've somehow figured out how to go from copper to fiber in a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. CenturyLink's gotten that money, and they figured out how to give it to their investors mm-hmm. and, and to the shareholders mm-hmm. and whatnot, mm-hmm. and to their executives in obscene pay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, 
I have I have no patience for this mm-hmm. right of first refusal mm-hmm. nonsense. And the idea that that the most efficient way is right. to is to I mean, it, it's, right. And that's his argument is you know it's 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 I think the phrase he uses is clunky to start with a new entrant receiving a subsidy when a firm that's already in the market has their processes all figured out they've already got you know some equipment and some lines in the market and all that you know that's his argument and well let's let's just but you so let's let's make this point right Mm -hmm. it presupposes in this world in which you are this guy this doctor 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 kind of guy who's very very much i know math um you know (laughs) It presupposes that there is this there's this product called broadband, right? And you could get it from AT and T, or you could get it from Chattanooga or, or Sandy, Oregon, um, and it's the same thing, right? Tell me, is it the same thing? Well, that depends. <laughs> well, that's no, just it. it's not the same thing, you know. But if I were Doctor Ford, I'd say, well, yes, it's the same thing. I mean, for what people need it for today, who needs a gig? Well, I'm glad you asked that because this is something that we have a video that's going to be tackling in a very short time, um, you know, a very short video tackling, tackling that. But it's, it's, it's not just about who needs a gig. And, and that's a, it's a question um, that is certainly raised. It's a diversion right. that is certainly raised. The question is, you know, I could pay 40 or $50 a month and I could get 50 megabits symmetrical or 100 megabits symmetrical of a high quality network in which when something goes wrong, I have customer service that works. I have um, you know fewer outages. I um, when, um, when I need to talk about upgrading, I can talk to somebody who actually you know is, is a human being. There's all kinds of things that go along with that that you don't get. But in his world, you know, in this world of just numbers where you only look at the, when you only look at the things that you care about, when the people who are writing the checks that are paying for the report care about, when you're in that world, then you can just pretend like, oh, yeah, AT&T is the same thing as Chattanooga or Verizon's the same thing as Chattanooga. And that's an example I've used many times. If Chattanooga had gotten Verizon Fios, which is practically the same sort of fiber optic technology, I mean, it's, a, it's very similar gear and very similar network architecture, they would, not, they would have thousands of fewer jobs, right? Mm-hmm. They would be, there would not be people flocking to Chattanooga to set up new businesses because these things are different. The, the service you get from a municipal fiber network in this way is fundamentally different. And when you look at a, a cooperative like RS Fiber here in Minnesota, the kind of service they're going to have in 10 or 15 years from the fiber network is going to be far different than if CenturyLink had suddenly decided to build it because CenturyLink is not going to invest in the community. They're going to harvest profits out of the community. They're going to suck stuff out of the community. And nowhere does that, does that do those sorts of things come into his analysis. Okay, so you brought up the idea or the concept of economic development and jobs. Let's shift to that. Because that's also in this report. We all the time see how the municipal networks are good for economic development. And Dr. Ford talks about economic development not so much as development as relocation and how a municipal network may bring jobs to a community. It's job stealing, Lisa. It is job stealing. And, you know, to be honest, you know, look at Westminster. You know, they took a 
business away from New York. You know, there was this women's clothing distributor who called Westminster even before the network was there and said, hey, you know, we're looking to move. That, that in, in the words of Dr. Ford, I believe that would be acceptable job stealing because that is job stealing that came apart as a result of a public-private partnership. And public-private partnership job stealing is different from municipal network job stealing. You say tomato, I say tomato. So... The, the but but here's here's a it's a good question and and here's a, this is a, 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 something I thought was very smart you know Rick Perry ran for president saying look at how great I've been I've I've built all these jobs in Texas and people pointed out when you're president of the United States you can't do what he did in Texas when he was in Texas he went around the country telling other states you know to the companies in those states move to Texas we won't tax you and and people move there now if he's president of the United States. What's he going to do? Like right. tell people right. come businesses in right. Ireland or, right. or, or in, in, you know, that is not how this works. And in fact, in the in the interview that uh, we did last week with Valprezo, I made this point, And in part, I may have been knowing that we were going to have this conversation. But we made the point very clearly that municipal networks often come as a result of, of, of jobs, of businesses within the community that want to expand, that are worried. Frankly, if Valparaiso had not developed this plan, then its businesses would be the ones that would be moving to other cities. Mm-hmm. And so this is not a matter of job stealing. The larger picture is one, you know, in, in Dr. Ford's world, I guess maybe that there are a certain number of jobs in the economy and the economy is a certain size and that doesn't change. I don't think that's accurate. I think that when we have more productive investment that allows more innovation, we have the economy grow and there are more jobs than there would have been otherwise. Oh, he totally left out the whole idea of innovation. No, and there are so many communities, that, so many people that were like that. They didn't come to Chattanooga. They didn't bring a job to Chattanooga. They moved themselves to Chattanooga to create a business. And in the future, those businesses will be creating jobs, we hope, mm-hmm. right? And so this is, this is it's so ludicrous and it's so... I wouldn't expect an economist to make such an elementary error, error to ignore the role of innovation. I, I really think this is one of those things. It's just a hack job. And I don't know why people take this seriously. I have to assume it's because most people don't actually read read it. They look at the title. They look at a short report about it that was written by a reporter who maybe skimmed part of it um, to take it seriously. This is a joke. This is this is not interesting. I mean, this is not even moving the debate forward in terms of challenging cities as to why they are actually doing this because this guy has no idea why they're building sit why they're building networks. He has no idea what happens when they do. He has no idea how to critique it in a way that might challenge them and force them to do a better job of it. This is is really just garbage in so many ways. I think you should invite uh, Dr. Ford to call you. I would I would love to have Dr. Ford on the phone. Frankly, I don't want to waste my time um, trying to convince him to come on the show. Um, but if he's interested, then I would be very happy to have a discussion with him. And that's that's true of other people who who oppose us as well. Um, you know, I think um, we had the, a wonderful debate with Ryan Radia from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Mm-hmm. I'm somewhat loath to have people on that will just lie. Um, you know, and to some extent. <laughs> Um, and I say that because I think I have a lot of respect for Ryan. Um, right. and, and I think that I, I have strong disagreements with him, but I have not seen instances in which he just says things that are not true. Right, right. Um, you know, Dr. Ford, I don't think is a liar. Right. I think he just has no idea what he's talking about. He gets paid to, to go off in his little fantasy world and talk about these models and that have no bearing on the reality that we see. Okay. 
I, I also want to address uh, another thing that um, Dr. Ford brought up in the paper, um, and that deals with state laws. Because he'd also mentioned how, um, you know, there are state laws that have been passed, and we've talked about this so many times on our website, and I'm sure the people who are listening know exactly what I'm talking about. And in his paper, he says that the state laws that have been passed are and have been accepted as having sound economic basis. <sighs> and those are the local authority laws. Right, right. So, I mean, there's a couple of different things, right? I mean, one of the things that that is one is struck by reading this is that this organization, the uh, State Government Leadership Foundation, talks about how that we need less dictation from Washington. And, yeah, well, shouldn't they be able to decide for themselves? I and mean, the next sentence, he should have said, we need more dictation from the state capitals. Because these are not people that want that want local communities to have any freedom. They want to be the ones to tell local communities how it is. And they just don't like Washington, not because they're opposed to preemption, but because Washington is not them, right? I mean, it's, it's, it, it's not a cohesive argument. This is like a bully that's just mad that there's a bigger bully out there. Well, they're just protecting the people, you know? I mean, the, they're trying to protect people from making bad choices. And I, there's an argument for trying to protect people from making bad choices. Usually these are the people that call that the nanny state and whatnot. Hey, they get to vote. So, they get to vote on these things. So the second piece is that... Um, they argue the focus of attention should not be in D.C. And again, I would agree with them in terms of that. The focus of the attention should be in the communities. This idea that, that D.C. doesn't get it, but, you know, the state capitals do, I, I don't believe that for a second. The state capitals, I think, get it more than a lot of the people in Washington, D.C. But at the same time, the state capitals don't really know what's going on in the communities. They just don't. And I see that of both the good people that I like and the good people that I don't like in terms of the decisions that they make. They are generally removed from their communities because they are focusing on state issues. If we believe decisions should be made locally, which we do at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, Lisa, you don't get to say no. <laughs> You're an employee of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. <laughs> you know I wouldn't say no. <laughs> um, you know, you then, know how I feel about that. Then this is an absurd point to suggest that, you know, we shouldn't have tyranny at the federal level. We need to have tyranny at the state level. That's great. <laughs> um, so so then they, they come up with this argument. that and And this is where, again, I feel like... You know, it's perhaps not appropriate to just make fun of this guy for being pompous or coming off as being pompous. But when you're when you're claiming that you're the only person doing a serious economic analysis or whatever he's claiming in terms of um, how serious this is, and this is the only kind of way that you can analyze this sort of stuff, and then you just act as though there's this thing called municipal broadband, well, that's dumb, right? I mean, that means that Santa Monica, which took zero risk in building their network using an incremental approach and not spending any new money on it and immediately creating a new revenue stream, that means that that took, took the same amount of risk as a city that borrows hundreds of millions of dollars like Chattanooga did to go into competition with uh, with Comcast and AT&T. Mm -hmm. There are vastly different risk profiles. There are vastly different impacts in terms of the, on the competitive environment. He even notes, he does note that open access is sort of a different kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then he kind of waves his hand a little bit. But so there's not this thing called municipal broadband. There are lots of different models that have lots of different approaches. And if you lay one fiber line from, you know, like a trunk line to connect your business park, then you know that's going to be paid off. That's no risk. That's entirely beneficial, I would argue. 
and to, to somehow suggest that a state law that, that says you can't take on zero risk projects and you can't take on higher risk projects at the same time, um, that's, that's not a sound economic law. If you want to restrict, if you want to be in the nanny state and you want the state to say, we don't trust you local people, you're too stupid to make these decisions for yourself, then you should say, okay, but if you want to do a really low risk approach, we'll let you do that. Mm -hmm. I don't know of a state that does that. Every state, basically, because these were written by the telephone and cable companies that want to restrict all competition, all of these state laws basically say, no, you just can't do anything, mm -hmm. which is not sound economic judgment. You mentioned that there's all different risk profiles, but the highest risk profile of all are the places that don't do anything when they need to do something. Well, I certainly you think know. that's true. One of the things that we talked about when we were making comments for the uh, case that's before the um, appellate court right now is how in Provo, the risk comes when the state has actually created a higher risk for them because they have to use the wholesale model. And so it makes it harder for them to, to make any sort of money off what they're doing to continue their service. I think that's a, a really good example. So... So Dr. Ford, you know, Mr. Fantasyland living guy, um, he is saying that the Utah law, which effectively says, you know, cities, we think that this is kind of a risky business for you to get in. So the only way you can do it is if you use the most risky model. That's the only way you're allowed to do it. That is a sound economic decision? No, that's ridiculous. It's a law that was written by the incumbents to stifle competition. That's what it was. It's not, it's not hard to figure out. I mean, from my point of view, one of the things that one has to get from this is that they believe that the incredibly gr fast growing movement of people, you know, these 50 communities in Colorado that have just voted to reclaim local authority and the 10 more that did it more recently than that, and probably the 30 or 40 that are going to do it the next time they have it on the ballot. They're all crazy, right? They're all crazy because they just haven't understood that this thing's a failure and it's a disaster. And if only they would read the evidence. I, every now and then I have these moments where I think, what if we're wrong? And, and it's something that I think one of the reasons we've had a lot of success is that we try to check what we say and we, and we try to be very serious about that. And I just keep coming back to the fact that there are high risk models and there are lower risk models. And when we look at it, there are these communities aren't lying when they talk about the benefits that they've seen from it. Right. I understand why there is such a temptation um, when you believe another community is doing something wrong to try and prevent them from doing it. Uh, what continually surprises me is the basic lack of work that our opponents do on this, right? I mean, to claim that these municipal networks tend to be failures and then to publish a report that says, yeah, but usually six out of ten people in the community right. choose them for service, right. it's, it's mystifying. I mean, take a little bit of time to understand what you're writing about before you jump into the math. Because... We can't keep up with correcting you. Right. No, it's a lot of work to read this stuff. I mean, you have no idea how many times I had to go facepalm, right? You get a headache at a certain point when you read these ridiculous statements. Like, municipal broadband is in almost all scenarios subsidized entry. And then when you figure out what he means by subsidized entry, he means everything, right? And there is no entity. I, I defy anyone to find an entity in the United States that has not benefited from what he would classify right. as subsidized entry. Yep. Yeah. Anything but a bake sale? 
<laughs> That's a subsidy, Lisa. A tasty, Dark. tasty subsidy. So that was it, folks. That's another edition of Crazy Talk. Perhaps a little bit crazier than usual. Um, love to hear what you have to think. If you think we should do more Crazy Talks, if you have any ideas for people we should uh, talk to or topics we should cover, reach out to us. Send us your cakes and donuts. <laughs> That was Chris and I poking our fingers through the many holes of a recent report written by Dr. George Ford of the Phoenix Center. The center recently joined forces with the State Government Leadership Foundation to publish his report. If you want to read the transcript of this or any of our other 199 podcasts, you can find a link to the index at the podcast page, muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Send us your ideas for the show. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks.org. We have new music this week. Thank you to the group Forget the Whale for their song, I Know Where You've Been, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 200 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Mm-hmm.